this scripture passage is taken from Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an idoa, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Taysan. Uh, Father, we just pause for a moment and we thank you for your word, which is about the kingdom of heaven. And we just got to sing of the wonders of your kingdom. And Lord, the freedom that comes from being a part of your kingdom. Let every one of us in this room, let every heart hearing my voice be able to sing that joyful song that comes from knowing that you rose from the grave. There's no enemy that you can't conquer. There's no uh, person or thing at all of created universe, Lord, who can conquer you. You have conquered every enemy and death will be the last one that is crushed under your feet. And we look forward to that day. And Lord, I pray that the, the freedom that we sung about of knowing that we are loved by you would come to every person in this room. Let us know your love. Let us experience freedom from being enslaved to sin. And let your word have that effect in our hearts this morning. Let us love your word even more because through it, we understand you rightly. And so, Lord, I pray, drive a love for you deep within the heart of every one of us. And we ask that you would do this even as we think about your word. May your spirit be at work in our hearts and I pray all of this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you have your Bible uh, and you keep with me in chapter 5 of Matthew. That's where we're, we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And just to, to quickly remind us of where we have been, one of the interesting things about the Sermon on the Mount is that it begins with uh, blessing. Uh, eight times or so, Jesus uses the word blessed, which simply means happiness is another way that could be translated. So when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about a kingdom of blessing, a kingdom of happiness. And so he unfolds the character of the people who are in that kingdom by describing what they look like, what the content of their character is. And so this blessing that comes to those people, he, he does through first, uh, for the beginning of the chapter and then all the way through verse 10. And then he ends that, and you would think that the world would welcome people who have the content of, of the character of the kingdom of God. You'd think the world would welcome such people, but Jesus tells us, you're not going to be welcome, you're going to be persecuted. And he in, does something interesting, he inserts himself into the sermon. So the first 10 verses or so, he talks about the, the people of the kingdom. And then after we get to this notion of persecution, he connects that persecution with himself. 
And he says, you're actually going to be persecuted because of your connection to me. He says, on my account. But then he says, don't let that stop you from preserving what is good and preventing what is evil. He said, be salt in this world. Don't let persecution stop you from being salty for the name of Jesus. And, and he says, let your light shine. Now, we, we talked about last week, Jesus is the light that shines through us and out into the world. And he says, don't let any kind of suffering for my name's sake diminish your brightness because you're intended to be seen. The light within you is intended to be seen. Your faith in Jesus is intended to be seen even by those who are persecuting you. We're going to get there in a little more detail. But he says, let your light shine. And so in such a way that you do your good work so that your father in heaven gets the glory. Not yourself, right? Don't do good things so that people think you're just nice people. That's good, but it's not eternally valuable. Do good things so that people see your good works and they say, your God is amazing. That's what we're shooting for. So that's the content of, of all that we have seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we get to the paragraph where we are today. And Jesus stops talking about the people of the kingdom. And he talks about now his own purpose in the kingdom. He describes his own purpose. And he does it by, by saying what he hasn't done. And then he affirms what he has. And then he talks about those who are teaching something very differently. Namely the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, my teaching is going to be very different from theirs. And it's going to be so different, some people are going to accuse me of just canceling the whole law. And he, he's going to explain, I have not come to uh, abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And, and then he concludes this paragraph by saying, uh, in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, or you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. That is a breathtaking, stunning statement. We'll come back to that later. But then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of that, that sentence. So 521 through the end of chapter 7, Jesus explains what that exceeding righteousness looks like. So you know where we're going. We're, 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 Jesus, this is a kind of introduction to the deeper portion of the Sermon on the Mount is what we're going to look at this morning. And unfortunately, uh, I'm... I'm going to have to break it up into two parts. So Taysan read four verses. We're just going to get to two. Now, uh, somebody said to me this morning, you know, I calculated and by the rate we're going, it's going to be like a decade before we get through Matthew. <laughs> That's maybe true. But our point is, is not to get, and this was a loving brother who he wasn't trying to criticize, uh, but it's a fact. We're going very slow. And I just want to address the issue because when, uh, why do you come here? And when we gather to worship, um, we're gathering to see Jesus. The purpose of this Sermon on the Mount is to, is to display the beauty of Christ. So none of you, when you go to an art museum, you don't walk into the front door and say, all right, let's see how many pictures we can get through. What, do you? Some of you do, actually. Okay. <laughs> Well, you ought not to. That's not what we're going to do with Jesus, right? We're, I'm striving to behold before you the glory of an incomprehensibly beautiful person. 
And it sometimes is a bit overwhelming to me, and I feel completely inadequate for the task. But Jesus here this morning, in this paragraph, he really forces you to think about two things, and me. He, he wants you to ask the question, what do you think about the Old Testament? That's what he's going to first talk about. And he's also going to say, what do you think about me? What do you think about me? That's, that's for what we're going to have to wrestle with. And what do you think about the Old Testament? Now, if you're uh, one of those people that you're like, I, I can't stand the Old Testament. I don't have any idea what anything is saying. Well, maybe this will be a challenge. But um, I, I pray that it's an invitation to see in a, in a little bit of a different way. What is the purpose and the point of the Old Testament? And then my prayer is that you would see the beauty of Christ through all of this. And so we're, we're just going to get through verses 17 and 18 this morning because these are, this, this, this paragraph is incredibly important because it has to do with the nature of prophetic word, of God's word in the Old Testament, but also what is the Christian's relationship today, mine and your relationship to the Old Testament law? Are we supposed to still keep it? How do we understand what to keep, what not to keep? That we just can't handle in, in one sermon. So I, I pray you forgive me and be, be gracious as we make our way through. So let's go back and read 17 and 18 one more time. Get it before us. Jesus says this. These are the words of Jesus. Remember, glass, grassy plain uh, on the edge of a mountain, uh, side of a mountain. He's, he's preaching to his disciples sitting at his feet. And there's a crowd listening all around. And he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not one iota, not one dot of the law will pass until all is accomplished. Right, so that's, that's what he's about. So notice his opinion about the Old Testament. We'll, we'll get there. So Jesus begins by a negative statement. He begins with say, don't think I have come to abolish the law. So he uses a negative beginning, which interesting, this is a helpful point of communication, right? Some of us can grow in our skills of how to communicate. And, and it is often very helpful to say what you mean. We all know that. But sometimes it's exceedingly helpful to say what you don't mean. And here Jesus is beginning by saying, I, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's not why I'm here. So don't think that's what I'm doing. Now, he, he, nobody has charged him yet of doing this in the gospel of Matthew. We've not seen any accusations against Jesus. Very beginning of the gospel. And so Jesus, I think, is preempting what's coming. He's, he's preempting criticism that he knows will come because he's going to contrast his teaching over against the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it will be so different, so radical, so deep that some people will think, this is new stuff, Jesus. What you're saying is completely contrary to the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying at the beginning, before he unfolds his teaching, is whatever I'm doing, it's not abolishing the Old Testament. So if you think that, then your idea of, of the law and the prophets is, is wrong, is what he's politely saying. So we have to bear that in mind. Well, first question then is, what is the law and the prophets? 
What is the law and the prophets? What exactly is he talking about? And it's shorthand for all of what we call the Old Testament. The law and prophet, it's, it's the whole Old Testament. It's Jesus's Bible, you might say, because there was no New Testament yet. It's unfolding. So when, the, when you see him talking about the law and the prophets, he's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. So Genesis to Malachi is what Jesus is talking about. Now, sometimes we see law specifically refers to the, the beginning of the Holy Scriptures, the Jewish Scriptures. It's that very beginning, the law, first five books, the Pentateuch, also called the Law of Moses. That's the beginning of the, of the Hebrew Scriptures. The prophets comprise the end of the Scriptures because that's where the prophets have written in the collection of the scrolls. So that's the end. The prophets, what are they? Uh, simply referred to uh, as, as the spokesman of God and they in their message is completely in accord with the law. Now, if you ever, do you ever pray and ask a question and get an immediate answer? If you're reading your Bible, sometimes that happens. It happened to me this morning because I'm praying, what should I even say about the prophets, right? Because there's a bunch of them and guess what? In my daily reading, the answer popped up in 2 Kings chapter 17. So if you're wondering, who are the prophets? Here's a perfect summary of who the prophets are. This is 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 13. And uh, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all of the law that I commanded your fathers and I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Remember, Moses was a prophet. What do the prophets do? They expound and explain the law of God. They speak God's word, help you understand his law, and then how to live within it. And when you're off track... What God says here, when Israel got off the rails, spiritually, he sent prophets to call them back. Back to what? Obeying the law. Obey the commandments. Keep my word. And so, here, that's what the prophets do. So when Jesus is talking about the law and the prophets, it's a shorthand statement for the entirety of the Old Testament. From beginning to end, think Genesis to Malachi. Think your Old Testament. Uh, that's what we're talking about. And so he says, I'm not, I'm not abolishing any of that. I didn't come to do away with any of the law and prophets. It all stands. So if that's Jesus, what he didn't come to do, what did he come to do? And then he tells us, I have come, verse 17, to fulfill them. I have come to fulfill them. And I, I was amazed to discover the depth of the debate over the word fulfill. Because when you hear that, I've come to fulfill the Old Testament, I, they, I didn't abolish anything, I'm just fulfilling. Um, massive debate over what this means. The word simply means to fill up or complete. Like you've got a half empty water bottle, imagine that. Uh, and to fill it up is just to bring it all the way up to the top. That, that's, that's a clear, uh, the, the most basic meaning of that word, to fill up. means uh, just to, to bring to, the, to fullness. Um, it can also mean to reveal the true meaning or the true significance of something. To fill up the meaning. You partially understand, but then to fill up the meaning means I, you truly give it. You give it fuller sense or a clearer sense of meaning. But when you look at Matthew's use of the word... Authors can have particular uses of particular words. Matthew uses this word 17 times. And when he uses it, particularly about Jesus, it means to bring to, to pass what God has previously promised. 
So Jesus fulfilled this or that, meaning it's related to a promise in the past that now comes to completion. This is what Jesus is doing. So if we let that understanding guide us when Jesus says he's going to fulfill everything in the Old Testament, we should think he's completing God's promises. And Paul loves this idea and even says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all of the promises of God are yes in Jesus. I love that verse. How many promises can you think of real quick? You have promises in your mind that you cling to? Uh, maybe, I mean, one that comes to my mind is, I, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I, I cling to that promise, right? How's that possible? Paul says it's Jesus. All of the promises of the Old Testament are yes in Christ Jesus. Jesus accomplished God's promises. But we also see Jesus coming and saying, I'm, I'm coming as the light of the world. And so in fulfilling the Old Testament, he brings clarity to what we find in the Old Testament. And so the scriptures there are, are unfolding his true nature and the true nature of prophecy, the true nature of God's will and his word. Jesus begins to clarify that. And it, it uh, reminded me of what St. Augustine said, which he said, the New Testament is in the old concealed and the old is in the New Testament revealed. So my question, what do you think about the Old Testament? What's your own understanding of the Old Testament? Dry, dusty books that are confusing and useless and completely impractical? Or an exposition of Jesus? Can, can you see Jesus in the Old Testament? That's what Jesus is saying. I'm, I have come to demonstrate what wasn't clearly seen before. Not only those promises that are pointed to in the future, I'm accomplishing them, but I am also revealing them, exposing them for the world to be seen. Jesus is the goal of the Old Testament, is what we're understanding here in this statement. So Jesus even says this. His, his idea that the Old Testament points to him is, who would you say that? Either that's incredibly arrogant Oh, that is incomprehensibly true. And if that's true, what great wonder and joy for those of us who are trusting in him. And so Jesus, he said this in John chapter 5. He said, you search the scripture because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is they who bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me because Moses wrote about me. How many of you, when you go to read the first five books of the Bible, you say, okay, Jesus is in here, right? Especially Leviticus, right? When, how many of you love Leviticus? My good grief, I break out in sweat when I go into Leviticus. It's, it's incredibly confusing. But what do you see? The entire sacrificial system pointing to the one sacrifice that will actually take away sins, Right? The, the Old Testament, did those animal sacrifices remove sins? No. Hebrews said, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But it was a temporary covering until the Messiah came. Leviticus is about Jesus. It is about the sacrifice that he offers in order to cleanse us from all of un unrighteousness. And so, do you see Jesus in the Old Testament 
right? Jesus, after his resurrection, was walking on the road with two disciples to Emmaus. And he did this. We, We find this in Luke 24, 27. Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, there it is again, right? He interpreted to them all the scriptures that the things concerning about himself. That, if I ever live long enough, I'm gonna write a book about that. I started that over my sabbatical and in, in fleshing this out. I haven't been able to touch it since then. But yet, if, I, if the Lord lets me live long enough, that's going to be my life goal is to go look into the Old Testament from Moses and all the prophets and point to, to where that we see Jesus. But we, we do. We, we get hints of it all over the place in the New Testament. But notice Jesus' opinion about the Old Testament. Look at verse 18. Okay, so he didn't come to abolish anything. He has come to fulfill it. And then he says this, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's incredible. Jesus is claiming that time will not end until every detail in the Old Testament is completely accomplished. That's what he is saying. And how many of us accord with that kind of understanding? Now, this word truly, truly in the Greek, it's amen. We say amen at the end. It means yes, let it be, or it is absolutely true. It'll certainly happen. This is unique to Jesus. He says this often. Truly, truly, I say to you, meaning this is absolutely true. This is going to happen. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely certain. Truly, I say to you. Right, so he's saying, he's emphasizing this point. This is not just a... Time will not end until everything in the Old Testament comes to pass. He is saying, this is certain. So Jesus is absolutely convinced that the smallest detail of God's will and his word in the Old Testament will come to pass. He's completely confident in it. Do you have that kind of confidence in God's word? That kind of confidence in the Old Testament? Or do we just avoid it with like the plague? I hope you're hearing the voice of God to say, you know what? In your reading, don't ignore the Old Testament. Dig in to discover where Christ is. And and the point Jesus is making is the details matter because God's promise, his will and his word will be effected down to the smallest detail, which is an iota or a dot. Or a jot and a tittle, depending upon what you grew up with. And what is that? Okay, little, little, little exercise here. I'm going to show you. In the Hebrew script, um, the iota refers to the Hebrew letter that is a yod. It's called a yod. It's a tiny, looks like a tiny little comma that is aligned with the upper portion of the text. Uh, it is almost, you can, you can miss it if you're not looking for it. Um, but that is at the beginning. We see two places here at the beginning. That's and. The little straight line at the beginning is a vav. That is and. And then Davar is uh, the verb to speak. So, and thus spoke Yahweh. You see the Yod at the beginning of Yahweh and at the beginning of Davar, to speak. A little tiny looking like a, a, a comma. And even smaller than that is the dot, which in the next slide is simply a little stroke that puts a little shelf out over the edge of the Dalit. It's the only thing that's different between the Dalit and the Resh, which is the D and the R. It's just a little knot. Little tiny script. Jesus is saying, 
my father's word will be completed down to the absolute smallest and tiniest detail. It will all be fulfilled. It will all be accomplished. Nothing will be left out. Nothing will be lacking. It will all come to pass. And as I thought about that truth, I was reminded of what Joshua said at the end of his life. His summary statement for God is, is in Joshua 21, 45. He, he, he repeats it a couple times at the end of the book of Joshua. But he says not one word of all of the good promises of the Lord that he made to the house of Israel have failed. Everything has come to pass. Everything has come to pass. Nothing has failed. God's word and his promises do not fail. You can trust him. And uh, my daily reading also has me in Psalm 119. Uh, This forever enduring nature of God's word, which is what Jesus is saying here, nothing of this is going to pass Time won't come to an end until all of God's will and word is accomplished. This is, this is also proclaimed in Psalm 119. Um, 89, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Forever. God's word is written. It's, it's sealed. It will endure. Forever it is fixed in the heavens. And the sum of your word is uh, truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. That's verse 160. So God's word is enduring, lasting, faithful, and true. Jesus believes the Old Testament is not invalid, nor is it irrelevant, but it is permanently in place and will fulfilly, uh, will faithfully be accomplished to the fullest degree. That's Jesus' opinion of the Old Testament. Is that ours? Do we believe that about the Old Testament? Faith and confidence down into the smallest detail. And so, if that's true, that shapes the entire direction. If he's come to fulfill everything that's in the Old Testament, then the entire purpose of Jesus's life is seen in the Old Testament, and you can't know him without it. You can't fully understand or know Jesus without understanding the Old Testament. Because if if you think, and and I hear this all the time, I'm a a New Testament Christian, right? I'm I'm a red letter Bible. Only only the red letters are true. All the red letters are the exposition, the black ones in the Old Testament. And you can't understand who Jesus fully is unless you see him in the Old Testament. Because that would be, I was trying to imagine how to describe this. This would be like me coming to my wife when we were just getting to know each other. And I finally decided I wanted to marry her. And I were to say to her, you know, I I love you. I I think you're beautiful. Uh, I want to get married. And she says to me, well, you need to, you need to know all about me. All of me. I said, you know, let me tell you the, the first 22 years of my life, what that was like. And I was like, no, I don't want none of that. Um, I'm not interested in all that business. I have no idea what that, that's all in the past. Let's just leave it in the past. Let's just move forward. That's what it would be like. Do you want to say that to Jesus? I don't, I don't care what the past is. It, you, you're the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I don't really care about Old Testament prophecy. You know, you don't know that the, for Jesus's life is unfolding exposition of the Old Testament. It shapes who he is and what he's doing. In fact, it's how we identify him as the Messiah. Knowing all that is said about Messiah in the Old Testament helps us have unshakable confidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And so we have to know 
the past in order to appreciate what we see in Jesus in the present. So you can't fully know him without understanding all that is the foundation of his coming. So what did he fulfill is the last question I want you to think about. What did Jesus fulfill? If it's true, he fulfilled this Old Testament and he's come to fulfill the, uh, the law and the prophets. What did he fulfill? There's a handful of things that I think you should meditate on. Because if you see what he has done, I think it will cause you to be amazed at him and to worship him and to love him more deeply. The first thing he has done is he has completely and perfectly obeyed the old covenant. Completely and perfectly obeyed the Old Testament in every way, shape, and form. So Jesus was, uh, he lived about 33 to 35 years-ish, somewhere in that neighborhood. He never disobeyed a single command. Never sinned, not even once. And this is astonishing to me, but um, we see several pointers of this in Scripture. Jesus was preaching one time in his hometown, and he said, as he was getting criticized for his preaching, he said, which one of you convicts me of sin? He stands up and he's preaching this. Anybody stand up and convicts me of sin. And it reminds me of going to like a high school reunion when everybody, everybody knows you and standing up and say, okay, who can, who can ever you know, display any fault about me? None, can anybody? Would, would anybody dare say that? I mean, there's going to be a whole room full of people jump up. Oh, yeah, I, I remember a couple things about you. And Jesus says, who convicts me of sin? Nobody does. Nobody finds anything to convict Jesus. And what's even more astonishing is when the mock trial of Jesus was taking place and they were trying to find witnesses. You got to have two witnesses to condemn a guy to death. They could not find two witnesses to agree on a single sin that Jesus did. Couldn't find him. Even Pilate, as he examines, he's like, this guy's done nothing wrong. Even the centurion who watched Jesus die said, surely this man is innocent. And the thief next to him said, we're getting what we have deserved. And yet this guy, he's done nothing wrong. Jesus completely obeyed the law. He never sinned. That's the first thing he did. The second fulfillment comes from him fulfilling the law by dying to pay the punishment for sinners. Right? The law demands death of those who have sinned against God. That's the just requirement of the law. What does Paul say? The wages of sin is what? Death. And so death must happen if the law is to be fulfilled. And so Jesus died. He actually physically died in order to bear the punishment of those who have sinned. Now, the question is... Did he die for his own sins or for the sins of others? Right? The resurrection proves it wasn't his sins that he died for. If he had died for his own sins, he would have stayed dead. But yet he didn't die. He rose again to demonstrate that he died for those who trust in him. So Jesus, by his death, atoned for our sins. He fulfilled that just requirement of the law. Third, he fulfilled the requirement that blood must be shed in order for forgiveness to be granted. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus shed his blood in order to grant forgiveness to those who would trust in him. So Jesus is our soul-saving forgiveness. And fourth, Jesus fulfilled the requirement of the law in order to give life and righteousness to unrighteous persons. It's not righteous to give what is not deserved to people who don't deserve it. And yet Jesus comes and gives life 
through the Holy Spirit to those who trust in him, both life and righteousness. Not only new spiritual life does the Holy Spirit give, and Jesus alone has the authority to pour out the Holy Spirit. When he was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, we are told that then he received the right to pour out the Holy Spirit upon those who would trust in him. And so giving the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual life, but then also his spirit dwelling within us gives us the power to then live out the holiness that is required. Apart from Jesus, we don't have that. Jesus fulfilled the right to receive, to pour out the Holy Spirit. Fifth, Jesus fulfilled the truth that life is sustained by something outside of us rather than something inside of us. And we see this in the giving of bread in the wilderness. God provided physical life in the wilderness. He himself directly. Every morning they woke up, there was manna on the ground that sustained their physical life. But Jesus then came and said, I'm that bread. I give you spiritual life. The words that I say are spirit and truth. And so he gives spiritual life and only from him is is that he alone has received the right to be that bread of life to us. And six, Jesus fulfilled the requirement that a holy priest be the intermediary between sinful people and a holy God. Jesus is that priest. He is our high priest and nothing, not even death, prevents him from fulfilling all of the obligations of a priest. And so he's fulfilled that right. He's the one who stands between us. As Paul said, there's one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Jesus Christ, who was resurrected and exalted to heaven. So there's no need for an earthly priest who is fallible and sinful. The only need we have is a holy priest, and it's Jesus. Jesus alone is sinless. And lastly, Jesus fulfilled the requirement that a particular place be where communion between God and man happens. In the Old Testament, it was a temple. If you wanted to enjoy the presence of God, where did you go? You went to Jerusalem. Well, we go there now? No, we go to Jesus. The place of communion with God the Father is not a place anymore. It's a person. And when you think about it, there's not a temple anymore. After the coming of Jesus, all of these things have gone away. They've all been destroyed. They're all useless. The temple temple doesn't exist anymore. There's no no temple anymore, right? The, The blood sacrifices, that's not happening anymore. Why? Because Jesus is the one sacrifice to take away sin. There's no, there's no Levitical priesthood anymore. Why? Because they're not needed. Jesus is the priest. All of these things are over and done with because Jesus fulfilled them all. He accomplished all of what God has said. And so when he says, don't think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them, to complete them in, in every way. And so, it, it, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one little speck of the law is going to pass from the law without being fully accomplished. So what is your opinion of Jesus? What, what do you think about him and all that he has accomplished? And what, what's your opinion of the Old Testament? It, is it a means of understanding this sweet Savior was it just ancient stories? And, and I would invite you, if you want to accept the challenge to begin to look at the Old Testament in a new way, 
Trust the, the promise of God that he gives understanding to those who seek it. Paul told Timothy, think over what I say to you and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That's a promise I would invite you to pray before you begin reading the Old Testament and, and pray it. I, I sometimes see, like the Psalm 119 also says, Lord, open up my eyes to see wondrous things from your law. Pray that before you read the Old Testament. Lord, help me to see you here. Let me see Jesus here in this Old Testament. Because the, the, the ramifications of that fulfillment has everything to do with the question I know you're thinking, well, how do we now relate to the law? If Jesus didn't abolish the Old Testament law and it still stands, then how do we Christians today have to relate to that? And I'm going to have to put you off for two weeks. Um, I'm going to be out next week. Steve is going to preach on anger, which is the next paragraph next week. Uh, we assumed I'd be able to get through all of this in one go, and I just couldn't do it. So I'm going to invite you to, to pray with me and ask that question. Lord, how do we relate to the law? What, what is this uh, that you're doing? What are, what are the consequences of your fulfillment? And if all of this is stopped and it's unnecessary, something massive have changed, right? You don't have to offer blood sacrifices anymore because Jesus did. He accomplished it. It's done. So things, Jesus is coming changes everything changes everything. And so let's, let's ask the Lord uh, two questions today. What, what's your opinion of the Old Testament? And, and secondly, what is your opinion of Jesus who fulfills it? Do you worship him as that fulfiller of all of the promises of God and praise him for what he has accomplished? So we're going to sing praises to his name. We're going to, we're going to again, stand and praise the name of Jesus with me. And, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to stand with me when the worship team will come. But let's just uh, pray together. Go ahead. Let's stand right now. Father God, we come to you uh, through your word. Because in it we see spiritual truths that are hard to get our head around. And so, Lord, I ask you, would you give us understanding that would bring us to a place of salvation? Give us understanding that allows us to trust in you completely. Let us not shun your word or think that there are truths in the Old Testament that are, are no longer helpful for us in our faith. And Lord, let us wrestle with how we apply what we see in these words. But Jesus, most of all, I ask you, would you let us see your glory? Would you let your kingdom come in such a way that your people have new vision to see your glory? Uh, we, are, we are fallible people standing here before you. And yet, Lord, we want to obey you completely. We want to treasure you fully. We want to live our lives every day at work this week in such a way that you get the glory. But Lord, we won't do that if we don't see you as the treasure of our souls. So God, grant uh, that spiritual eyes to everyone in this room to see Jesus as the only source of salvation, the only way of coming to you, God. There's nobody like Jesus. No one has done what he has done. And Lord Jesus, we want to praise you for it. So may we worship you now in spirit and in truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.